Welcome to the Limitless Energy Podcast. And today it's my pleasure to welcome legendary sailor and marine writer, technical writer, Mr. Nigel Calder. Welcome. Well, hello. Great to be here. Uh, it's it's awesome to have you here in Reno. Have you been to Reno before? No, I was amazed at how beautiful it is. Have you, you've never been to Lake Tahoe? No, sailed no, on the no, lake. No. It's right now. There's snow on the mountains. The sun is shining. It's it's gorgeous, gorgeous here today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's been a heck of a of a winter, but it's gorgeous here today. Yeah. So, uh, Nigel, uh, you've you've been a bigger part of my life than I realized because of the books that you've written. But mm -hmm. I want to go way back before mm -hmm. we get to. Um, your your technical writing. Um, so obviously you're English. You grew up in England. Mm -hmm. yep. And at what point did uh, the marine life become important to you? I went to a Church of England summer camp when I was, I think, 12 years old. And they had a couple of sailing dinghies. And I got hooked on sailing. Church of England summer camp. Yeah, no, Where was no, that? No, I'm not the least bit religious. <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, like uh, other summer camps. It was a fun place. I had a couple of uh, Wayfarer dinghies, they're 16 foot sailing dinghies. And I just loved it. I got hooked immediately. How old were you? 12, I think. And then <clears throat> at uh, school, I hated organized sports of any kind. And it turned out that um, my best friend at school, uh, his father had a dinghy on a flooded gravel pit close mm -hmm. to where we had school. So we persuaded our mothers to take us sailing on a Wednesday afternoons when it was school, when uh, sports day. So we got to go sailing uh, pretty much every Wednesday afternoon. And you just go by yourselves? Uh, well, our parents, my mothers took us, yeah, and then we go sailing on the dinghy. And then I sat there in high school dreaming about building a boat sailing around the world. This was the 1960s when they had the first single-handed round-the-world race. Uh -huh. And uh, it made headlines in England because it was funded by one of the leading British newspapers. So we all followed that. So, and, and there were the early cruising sailors like the Hiscocks, who probably, even you were too young to remember. Yeah, I don't know who you're talking about. The who? <laughs> the Hiscocks. They, they uh, on a series of boats, they sailed around the world multiple times and wrote about it. And, and as they generated income from the books, they got bigger and nicer boats. And uh, so, okay. a whole bunch of us got the idea we could do the same thing. Okay, that's where you got the idea. Are they and from the 60s? This would be the 60s, yeah. Okay. And I went to college in 66, and there was a little bit of a hiatus. From um, life? <laughs> no, there was, there was a lot of living. <laughs> you know, college in 1966 right, right. was... It was pretty wild. We got into homebrewing and some other interesting activities. It was the Vietnam War, even in England, that had an impact. Right. Um, and then <laughs> my brother had a boat on the east coast of England, a 26-foot sailboat. And in 1971, I met this rather wild American teenager and invited her to go sailing on my boat. I didn't tell her it was my brother's boat. And uh, he was in Canada at the time. And we got on the boat and she said, why don't we go to Amsterdam? I said, sure. I had no idea how to navigate. That's on the other side of the North Sea. So we pointed the boat in the right direction, and I'm reading Eric Hiscos cruising under sail. He has a chapter on piloting, throwing up in a bucket and uh, reading the book and figuring out how to get uh, the other side of the North Sea. And the only chart we had from, was from before the Second World War. So we had some pretty good adventures, and on the way back, we got run down by a boat. It didn't sink the boat, but it did a lot of damage. But, but, so, you, but, but you made it to Amsterdam? We made it to Amsterdam, and, uh, and then uh, on the way back, we got run down. 
So then I had to go to work to pay for the damage. So that was my first paying job. I had to, uh, I went to work in a car factory working on the assembly line to pay for the damage to the boat. And I couldn't get near uh, Terry, who was still with me 52 years later. I couldn't get her near another sailboat for about eight years. So she, we, She's your wife. Yes. Yeah. So we built a couple of canal boats in England, and we lived on those for a few years. 70 foot long and six foot, 10 and a half inches wide. So it was, it was her idea to just go to Amsterdam, get, get in a boat and try to navigate. Yes, right. We built uh, these two canal boats. The English canals were built in the 1970s, uh, not, not, the 1700s. Uh, and uh, when they built them, it was before steam engines. So they were built for horse-drawn barges. And basically the biggest barge that a horse could pull was about 25 tons of, of load. And the, and the uh, standard size ended up being 70 feet long and six foot 10 and a half inches wide. I have no idea where that came from. So we built two um, canal boats that was 70 feet long and six foot 10 and a half inches wide. And then we lived on those for six or seven years. So we both had a couple of jobs. We were totally broke all the time. The boats chewed up everything we could afford. And, uh, and then in between, we would potter up and down the canals. And it wasn't, uh, at that point, you couldn't live on a canal without a registered liveaboard mooring. So, but if you moved the boat every two weeks, you were considered to be cruising and not living on the boat. So that's what we did for, for six years, I guess. We moved the boats every two weeks in a loop down the Thames River and then around and through the Oxford Canal. And then when the canal authorities would chase us, we'd go back on the river. And then when the river authorities chase us, we'd go back on the canal. So we went around in a, in a circle, basically, for six years. And in between, during our vacations, we would go exploring the canal system. It was actually, for young people, you know, in their 20s, it was a great life. Is your wife English? No, she's American. Her father was in the U.S. Air Force. That's why she was in England. And, and that's why she was in England. And she had been in England for a, a week. And, and uh, no, let's leave that bit of the story out. <laughs> if I go there, she'll shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I, I take it it was her idea to move to the state. She brought it was you to indeed. She'd finally had enough of living in poverty. Uh, we used to go around the open air market at the end of the market day and, and pick up all the vegetables that had been thrown away and stuff like that. <clears throat> and then. Every Friday, we'd shake our trousers out to see if we had enough money to go down the pub and buy a pint. So it was a pretty, pretty tight existence. And she finally got tired of it. So we came back to the States. And, uh, and then I discovered I could make three times as much money working in the Gulf of Mexico on oil rigs as I was making in England at that time. So I didn't go back. You were working on the oil rigs. Mm -hmm. And is your background in, did you have some sort of chemical engineering background? What were no, you doing no, on the well, oil as rigs? A kid, I, uh, me and my brothers would get derelict motorcycles from the scrapyard and fix them up. We, I guess I was about 12 when I worked on my first motorcycle. And then we got pre-Second World War cars that we would strip the body off. The, the, um, there was a, we were in the countryside and there were, the farmer next door to us had a field behind us. So and then we would strip the cars off and race them around the field behind us. And then uh, after I wrecked my brother's boat, I got a job in the car factory. And then after that, I got a job maintaining uh, like large generators in a foundry that was off the grid. And they had five or six or seven generators, the biggest of which was a three and a half thousand horsepower Mercedes engine that came out of a submarine that was captured in the Second World War. And then we had a couple of 2,000 horsepower generators and 
smaller ones and a mixture of European and American. We had a couple of Waukeshaws that come from Waukesha, a couple of British generators. We had metric, we had British Standard Fine, we had British Whitworth, we had every imaginable fastener under the sun on those engines, all different threads and different sizes. So it was quite an education. Did you, did you work on those engines? Oh, yeah. We, uh, when I got there, the, uh, the place was totally run down, and they were having several power outages a day. And in the couple of years I was there, we rebuilt and totally rebuilt down to the crankshafts uh, two or three of those engines. And by the time I left, we hadn't had a, I hadn't had a shutdown in six months, I think. It makes I, sense. I'm a little anal about it... maintenance. Oh, clearly, yes. yeah. Given your your, yes. your career path, after all, but uh, yes. uh, yeah, no, it makes sense mm -hmm. given the fact that you have such a mechanical background. You've worked on engines. You backed into well, boating by and the, and the guy that interviewed me for the job was one of those smart asses that thought he knew a lot more than he did. So he'd pop me some kind of simple question about engines because he really knew nothing about engines, and so naturally I can answer it. So then he hired me. So then I hadn't, at this point, I hadn't even done a tour of the plant. And I go in to uh, a couple of the generator rooms, and these things, you know, they're big enough to fill this space. And I thought, holy shit, I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. So then I had to do a lot of reading very quickly and figure out. I couldn't even tell which were the cooling pipes and which were the oil pipes. You know, there's pipes all over these engines. So one of the first things I did was uh, paint all of the pipes different colors for the different fluids that went through them. So it made these engines look kind of psychedelic, which was very appropriate to the times. <laughs> <laughs> did you learn from reading? Mostly from reading and then going in and studying these things. And, and, just, and then we had like, you had in those, I don't know what it's like on these big engines today, but... At that time, you could set the individual fuel injection processes on each injector, and then you, you would look at the exhaust temperature, and then you would balance and everything out by doing that. So there was a lot of trial and error here. And uh, after a couple of years, I got to be pretty good at it. You ever break one? No, no, no. We had a, a night engineer. He was on a Cunard liner docking at, in uh, New York, and um, they have these wing controllers, you know, on these ships coming in to dock so they can see where they're docking and they have engine controls on the wings and they, they were just docking the boat and he, he put a cover on one of the engine controls because they were all done and he accidentally knocked it in full speed ahead and the engineer down in the engine room you know just do 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 and winds the thing up and drives the Cunard liner into the dock and takes out the three feet of the bow of the boat and a whole bunch of concrete so he ended up being the night engineer in, in the factory I was working in and <laughs> With those uh, generators, you have to, uh, when you've got two of them and you want to bring a new one online, um, you have to synchronize the frequency, you know, the, the waveforms. Mm -hmm. and, and again, I don't know what it's like today. I'm sure it's electronic. But we'd have these disks that were showing the, the frequency and the rate at which they were going. And you had to slow one down and speed the other one up remotely until they were in sync and the two waveforms were aligned. And then you'd throw them in together. Well, he couldn't get the hang of it. And... Uh, Unbeknownst to us, he kept banging them in when they were not synchronized, which puts a huge shock load on the system. And he finally snapped the crankshaft on a 2,000 horsepower engine. I mean, we didn't wish to think about this big around. And he snapped it clean in half. So uh, we had to pull that one out and do a total rebuild on that engine. And we had another one that the crankshaft fractured on because of a, a bearing alignment issue. So I did um, total rebuilds on some of these big engines while and I was there. And not just me. We had to get a crew in to help. Uh -huh. 
So by the time I was done, I had a pretty good idea how to run these things. So at what point did you decide I could probably educate other people on what I'm learning here? Oh, that was years later. That was, uh, well, one of my, that was like 35 years ago. Where were we 20? So that must have been the 1990s, probably. 2000s, maybe. 2000s um, when you came to that decision? Well, I know that's not the case because... No, probably 1990s. 1990s. Yeah. Well, so I I didn't grow up around boats, um, but uh, the girl that I met, who is now my wife, lived on a boat. And funny how these happen, isn't it's it? It's funny how it works out, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I moved on the boat with her. Um, See, it's the boats that do it. it I know, right? <laughs> it's not the other way around. Huh? Um, <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. I mean, look at the two of us. I mean, why would you think it might be the other way around? <laughs> but anyway, I so I moved uh, I moved onto this boat. I was a liveaboard. I'd never been on a boat before, and so the the first thing I did, I started the engine, and a guy on the dock was screaming to me, "Hey, there's no there's no water coming out the back," and I was like, "I know." I didn't know, but I was, you know, I pretended, uh, and and so then I I understood that I had to go buy a book and learn, and. This is the book. Uh-huh. This is the book that I bought. I just see that's the second yeah, edition. Yeah, the it's second edition well, of the Boat Owner's Mechanical and Electrical mm-hmm. Manual by Nigel Calder. And this is where I, it, this was my Bible. And I bought this in 1998. Mm-hmm. So I, I know it's in the 90s, yes, at least, that yes. you started doing this. Yep. But um, I pulled this out uh, recently and... Uh, and and I had already met you. I knew who you were, and I was like, "Oh my God, no! I've known Nigel for thirty years." So, um, yeah, this was my Bible. You're I have to thank you for, for doing now, that. And it's is, almost twice as long as that one. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, this technology just keeps getting more complicated, but the old technology doesn't die. So essentially, I just keep adding rather than taking stuff out. There's almost nothing that's come out. Um, well, what strikes me about the book is that everything is is in such detail and there are not only is is there the the writing but the the sketches and mm-hmm. the photographs is that all you well uh the photos are the sketches are they hired an artist the publisher to take my sketches and make them look better um the uh was this McGraw many Hill? of the breakdowns of are ours but a lot more for for years when we pulled into you know we would cruise my wife and i for six months of the year on the boat mm-hmm. uh, once we moved to the states uh, outside of hurricane season, we'd go cruising. We'd go cruising because we couldn't afford to stay on shore. And uh, living on the boat, you know, we never went into marinas. Uh, we could live on $300 a month. Uh, and then uh, at that point, I had my diesel engine book was published in the first edition of that one. And the royalty check came in twice a year. So at the end of September and the end of March. Well, the September one <clears throat> generally went to pay overheads and stuff. And by the end of hurricane season, I mean, it was in November, we were out of money. So then we'd go sailing, and the next royalty check would come in at the end of March. So we had no money between the end of November and the end of March. So we'd go sailing. But I would go around all of the anchorages we were in and uh, ask everybody what problems they'd had. And then I would just accumulate all of their problems and, and uh, sometimes get on board their boats and take pictures, but mostly just get information on what went wrong and how they fixed it uh, and process all of that. How long Much did it take to write the first edition? Oh, it was two years. years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, partly on the boat, at which point we had two babies, 
One was when I first started that book, one was like four months old and the other was going on two years old. And I have this ability when I'm focused to shut out the world. And I can try Terry nuts because the two babies would be screaming on the boat. It was a 39 foot boat with the four of us and I'd be working on something and I'd be totally oblivious. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then finally it got too much. So we moved ashore um, to, to finish the book up. And, uh, and then uh, I, we went and stayed in Montana one winter and um, I hired a young girl. She was 17. She was, I think, the 14th child of a Mormon family. They had very large families. And, uh, of course, we're in Nevada, probably. Yeah, we've, we've yeah, heard of right. them. Yeah. And, and um, her mother was, was one of 17. I mean, it was a huge family. And this is back in the days of typewriters and Tipex and Whiteout. And, I, I remember, sadly, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and, and cutting and pasting. So finally, I, I got uh, hired her to retype the final draft of that book on a typewriter. It was the last one I did on a typewriter. And um, so she spent months doing that and got it into a form where I could send it to the publisher. And then uh, the next one, I finally got one of the, do you remember the first Mac computers that were like this big with a 256K memory? And was it a the, Apple? The an Apple, Apple II. The tiny little thing about this big. It was like a little box. Mm-hmm. And then for $1,000, you could buy a megabyte hard drive mm-hmm. that sat on, underneath it, which was this big square and this deep. And you had the... <laughs> the uh, External floppy drive. The, the floppy yeah, drive, yeah. yeah. So I did the next one on one of those, which is a pretty interesting experience. And then I had the whole thing finished and, and in Montana again, and I was proofing it. I did all the chapters separately because it was too big a file to merge. It took too long to save anything. And then when I was all done, I merged everything together into one file and I'm going through it and I found a double space between two words and I uh, corrected it and then we had a power cut. And I lost the whole frigging file. <laughs> and I took the computer to a guy in Billings and told him what had happened and he said, help. And he managed to recover the, the thing, but mostly without any punctuation. I had to go back in and, and reassemble the whole thing from this Huge string of words. Sorry, he, he recovered everything, but with no punctuation? It, yeah, yeah. So you had to basically rewrite I it. I learned about backing <laughs> Go up. Go through and hit space. Right. And, okay. uh, that's when I learned about backing up. Yeah. So I got a little more diligent since then. Valuable lesson. Yeah. 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 You, you've learned how to navigate boats since then, right? Well, in a somewhat yeah. <laughs> clumsy fashion. <laughs> we, we, uh, I, we've done a lot of... We did uh, cruising guides to the Belize area. Uh, Northwest Caribbean, and then uh, we circumnavigated Cuba. Uh, the first boat uh, was allowed to do that since the Castro Revolution. Um, they arrested us when we first got there because I had some, for, for its time, some fairly chart-making, sophisticated chart-making capabilities, and so we got arrested, and then they decided they wanted us to do a cruising guide because it would promote their nautical tourism. So we, the Cubans arrested you, dis- yes. discovered how adept you were at making maps, they and helped, so they, they hired no, you. That's why they arrested us, because I was making maps. <laughs> I see. <laughs> they held us on the boat for nine days while they tried to figure out what to do with us. Um, and then they decided we, they wanted us to do this. So then they let us circumnavigate Cuba. So we've made a couple of cruising guides, but in the process of that, we were using fairly crude technology, so there was a fair amount of running aground. Um, <laughs> Which uh, on occasion would drive Terry nuts. I do remember one time 
I, I ran us aground for the fourth time on Monday. And she said, Nigel, God damn you. How can you do this right before supper time? So <laughs> I learned that you don't run aground for the fourth time right before supper time. But, um, so, but I, I, I have no problems with running is, aground. Is that rule in your book? <laughs> That's in the book. Okay. So I have no problems with running aground um, as, as long as there's no wave action. Because, you know, you can always pull off. Right. So, what was the sketchiest situation you found yourself in? Oh, that was a serious grounding um, between Spain and Portugal just three or four years ago. We almost lost the boat. We had waves breaking over the top of the boat. It was a, that was a serious... Between Spain and, like, uh, north? Like there's, where... a, there's a river that defines the boundary between Spain and Portugal on the Atlantic coast of Portugal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they get pretty big waves there. They do, and uh, the sandbars move all the time. And we had been in and out of this river three or four times. And every time I had saved the track on the chart plotter and then just followed it in and out. The first time we went in, it was flat calm. And we got in the dinghy and we sounded it and mapped out a route. And mm -hmm. after that, we followed it. Well, overnight, the sandbar moved 30 yards. And uh, we came out in somewhat rough conditions. And I thought, well, what the hell? You know, we've done this three times already. I've got the track. And I just followed the track and ran us onto the sandbar. And uh, if, if the boat wasn't so well built, we'd have lost the boat. So you were you were kind of, you ran aground and the waves were big yeah. and crashing overhead. And yeah. how'd you get out of it? Um, with difficulty. Well, and with difficulty. Yeah, yeah, I would I would have guessed. But <laughs> we have a bell, more specifics. We have a powerful bell thrust on the boat, but I never use it. I forget it's there most of the time. Um, you know, for decades I've docked a boat without a bell thruster, and I just forget it's there. And I forgot it was there. I could have blown us off of that sandbar mm -hmm. in. 30 seconds with the bell thruster, but instead I'm working the throttles backwards and forwards and I'm watching the temperature go up because the, the sand is being sucked into the air engine. And um, Terry's on the bow trying to throw a line to a fishing boat that's trying to rescue us. And the whole situation is pretty hairy because there's water coming over the boat. Uh, and <laughs> because I forgot we had a bell thruster. And, uh, and anyway, so the fishing boat pulled us off, but, but it did a lot of damage to the it destroyed the rudder and it and damaged the hull. Mm -hmm. We were lucky the boat didn't sink. So it was a rather expensive repair job. But, uh, you know, there's all of those other times where you're in a spectacular anchorage or there's whales breaching alongside you. There was a time in the Gulf of Mexico when it we're basically becalmed and, and uh, two or three sperm whales come up alongside of us. They're twice the length of the boat. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, Terry and the crew jumped overboard to go swimming with them. And it just kind of went down and came up again a little further off. And I mean, there's all, there's all these totally there, yeah, I, they're yeah. usually they're wonderful stories. You don't get, and we uh, we have twice mm. now been in anchorages where wild dolphin, dolphins came up and wanted to play. The first time the kids were quite young, and uh, they jumped overboard, and this dolphin is butting them and then laying on his back to have its stomach scratched. This is a you know a wild dolphin, and uh, and then. Our daughter was about, you know, well, she's seven or eight at that time. She was getting a little cold, so she starts climbing the, the ladder to get out of the boat, and the dolphin wasn't through playing, came up behind her and butted her in the back and knocked her back in the water <laughs> so it could play some more with her. And then it quit playing, uh, and um, it went down to the anchor, and it came back up, and it went down again, and it came back up, and I thought, what the hell's going on? You know, I was busy taking pictures of the Terry and the kids, and I realized the anchor was dragging, and we were dragging towards a reef. And the dolphin was letting us know so oh. we reset the anchor and it went back to playing with the kids That's we've had that funny. happen once before we were when we were doing the 
cruising guide to the Northwest Caribbean, we were trying to get in and out of reef anchorages. Um, and the charts then were made in the 1830s by the British. I mean, there's been no new charting since then on that coastline, 1830s and 1840s. So it looked like there might be an entrance in the reef there. And I was searching for it. And I, we had a school of little spinner dolphins playing in the bow wave, like a dozen of them. And I went into the, what I thought was a, was an entrance, and the dolphins just went crazy. They're all jumping out of the water and acting nuts. So I realized there probably wasn't an entry, and I turned away, and they settled down again. And then I tried again, and they did the same thing. I mean, they were just telling us, you can't get this boat through that hole. You need to go somewhere else. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. That's, and that one dolphin recognized that you were dragging your anchor yeah. and yeah. was warning you. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we break from this podcast, I did want to give a plug for what you're doing today. So now you've had, you have a history of doing education through writing books and articles, but now you're doing something online with uh, boathowto.com. Boathowto.com. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, I have for at least a decade wanted to put some of this stuff I've learned over the years onto the internet, but I have zero skills or interest in frankly doing that. And I met this incredible a PhD, German PhD in computer sciences, who's also a sailor, who, who sailed on tall ships. I mean, he's just perfect. That's um, a small target to hit there. Yeah. So, uh, all right, you found him. It's taken me 10 years. <laughs> well, he found me, actually, because he, he had the idea of doing a boat how-to and uh, got a hold of me. And the minute we started talking, I thought, you know, this is it. And between the two of us, we've created this website, boathowto.com, which is subscription-based. Uh, right now, it's marine electrical education. But uh, we're going to do a course on diesel engines and diesel engine maintenance. Probably that'll be out by the end of the year. And uh, though I say so myself, it, it's probably the most accurate and comprehensive boat electrical education that's, that's available. And also, we attempt to shoot down a lot of the misinformation that you find on the Internet. It's all standards-based. So American Boat and Yacht Council and the ISO. Um, but the standards are solely focused on focus, on uh, safety. If something is stupid or non-functional, they don't care as long as it's not unsafe. Mm -hmm. So our focus is on functionality that's standards compliance. Uh, and so it's a very different focus to what you'd get from going to, for example, an ABYC seminar. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's so far. And it's nice to update it. You know, with a boat, you've got to wait for new additions, but here exactly. you can just go up and yeah. so, you know, fix uh, things. And then uh, we have interaction with the audience. So if questions come up, we realize there are bits missing from what we put out there. We can go back in and just add it in. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the beauty of this online process is that it's very immediate. Mm -hmm. It's not like publishing where you've got months between finishing something and seeing it in print. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, on that note, I look forward to talking shop with you in a podcast in the very near future. We'll right. talk again very soon. Thank you, you Nigel. Thank you, Dennis. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Limitless Energy Podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms.